Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China through our daily access newsletter, or check out our website for our growing range of stories, videos, and podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Jeremy Goldcorn is busy today with some club he belongs to. He said something about a new cue drop or an awakening, a coming storm. I, I think it had to do with some recovery group he's in, maybe Quaaludes Anonymous. I don't know what the Q stands for. Anyway, he sends his apologies and wanted me to say, uh, where we go one, we go all, whatever that's supposed to mean. Well, we wish him well. Uh it has been, what, nearly 20 years now since the publication of The Coming Collapse of China by Gordon G. Chang. Not the good Gordon Chang, who we had on the show a few weeks ago, Gordon H. Chang, but, you know, the the other one. His uh, prediction of economic catastrophe and political upheaval was by no means the only one published in the last two decades. It's only the best known, and the bears actually are quite numerous, the fatal flaws in the Chinese economy that they identify and, and emphasize range very widely and are often interrelated, you know, in, in un- insoluble demographic trajectory, massive overcapacity, unsustainable local debt, or some combination thereof. And yet, somehow, time after time, China's economy defies the expectations of many of the naysayers. Now, thanks to today's guest, you can read a book that will tell you how China does it, or has done it so far anyway, what challenges it still continues to face, and a lot more. The book is called China, The Bubble That Never Pops, and it's by Tom Orlick. After some years at the Wall Street Journal in Beijing, Tom became chief Asia economist for Bloomberg before coming back to, or coming to the United States, not back. He's from the UK, as you'll hear, a couple of years ago. He lives now in D.C. and serves as chief economist for Bloomberg. Tom, welcome back. Back to Seneca. It's been a few years, and congrats on the fantastic new book, which I just absolutely loved. Thanks, Kaiser. Great to be back. Um, before before we jump in, I, I obviously I have to ask you. You know what everyone doubtless wants to know is uh, you wrote this thing well ahead of the COVID nineteen pandemic. I think I actually had a galley of it around the beginning of the year, uh, but events obviously the last five months have. Have, have overtaken things. Have they confirmed your basic thesis or have they forced you to, to rethink or alter it? And, and I suppose that in answering that, you'll have to put that thesis succinctly. So that's something I need you to do anyway. So what has this done? So uh, if we think about the history of um, China analysis over the last six, seven, eight years, um, it's really been a, a continued diet of concern uh, steadily escalating concern that China faces a day of reckoning. China's debt is too high. Um, China's banks are overexposed. China's state-owned enterprises have borrowed too much. China's real estate sector is overbuilt. And it's just growth, continued growth, which is preventing the overloaded apple cart from falling over. Right. And so in the, in the first few months of this year, with the COVID-19 shock, We've really had a kind of almost a kind of a perfect storm. Uh, China's GDP contracted 6.8% in the first quarter of the year, unprecedented contraction. Business profits shrank, households faced unemployment, shrinking income, local governments faced shrinking tax revenue, fading land sales revenue. So if there was going to be a China crisis, if the China bears were correct, um, then surely 
that would have come in the last four or five months. And it hasn't come. Hmm. Um, so we'll see where we are in, in three months time. Uh, I feel like, uh, the title of my book is really tempting fate. Um, and, uh, uh, sod's law being what it is. I expect we'll have a, a China crisis in the next couple of weeks and I'll have to go back to the, go back to the publisher and beg them for a new front cover. Um, but so far, uh, the events of the last few months seem to be, uh, broadly in line with the thesis, which I said, I, okay, let's set that thesis out. I mean, what is the, the, the basic thrust of your argument? So the big point which I try and make is that the bears have it wrong. Yes, China has taken on a lot of debt. Debt to GDP has risen from around 140% in 2008 all the way up to 260% today. Uh, And when we see that pace of debt increase in most other countries, it's a pretty clear signal that a crisis is on the way. And yes, China has a bunch of other problems. There's a demographic time bomb. There's a big role for an inefficient state sector. Um, Real estate is overbuilt. Um, Where the bears have it wrong is what this adds up to. My view is this doesn't add up to a crisis. And what people miss, what the sort of the Cassandras of collapse miss, is the things which China has on its side. A very, very high savings rate, which means that the banks have a very stable source of funding, which means they can manage a very large stock of non-performing loans, Um, a determinedly developmental state, which keeps pushing back the technology frontier, keeps finding new opportunities to grow. These are very, very significant positives for China. They don't get enough attention in the sort of conventional narrative that you hear. And what they mean is that a crisis is not imminent. Right. I think you make the case very persuasively. Like most analyses of, of China's economic challenges, uh, you name debt first, uh, and you, you tackle that pretty early on in your book. Your outlook obviously isn't as pessimistic as, as most have been, but you know you do recognize it's a significant problem. Let, let's start with the size of, of debt, and let's start with government debt. Um, I think the official figure that was put at the, at the end of 2016, which you, you mentioned in your book, was you know that the debt to GDP, the government debt to GDP ratio is only 37%, uh, which if it were true, would make China a real model of fiscal discipline. But it, it's not true. Uh, how do you arrive at your estimate about uh, the total size of government debt to GDP, which is, I think you have it at about 130%? So going back to the 1990s, Kaiser, um, China's government finances have worked in a kind of complicated way. There's a split between tax revenue and spending obligations between the central government in Beijing uh, and the provinces. And the central government in Beijing grabs the lion's share of the tax revenue, but it leaves the bulk of the spending responsibilities to local governments. Uh, And what that means is that local governments, provinces, towns have got a problem. They generally haven't got enough funds to meet all of their spending obligations the money they need to spend on welfare, the money they need for infrastructure projects. Uh, And so they have a bunch of different workarounds. They sell land, they levy fees. And in the last decade, one thing which they've done in just alarming proportions is borrow money. Right. And one of the big concerns uh, for for many years when I was in China uh, was this issue of local government financing vehicles. 
So they're special vehicles which local governments set up uh, and they use them to get around the rules and borrow off the books. So a lot of the kind of the uncertainty around around how much China's government has borrowed centers on these local government financing vehicles. Yes, the government acknowledges the sort of 35-40% of GDP which the Ministry of Finance has borrowed, but there's this huge gray area around how much local government financing vehicles have borrowed and how much of that borrowing could ultimately end up on Beijing's balance sheet. So if you look at the official data, we've got debt around 40-45% of GDP now, very manageable. Japan, much higher than that. The United States, much higher than that. Many emerging markets, somewhat higher than that. But if you start adding on the obligations for local government financing vehicles, if you start thinking about some other things like how much borrowing has been done by the policy banks, China Development Bank and others, Mm -hmm. if you start thinking about unfunded pension obligations, you quite quickly get to a much higher number. Right. So local government financing vehicles have been the focus of a lot of the, the bearish attention. What makes you a little more optimistic about their ability eventually to meet their debt obligations or to somehow move those off their books? So there's, there's a few things which are going on. So the first thing is that, and this has kind of happened in a remarkably quiet way and with remarkably little attention, China's policymakers have actually already engaged in an absolutely enormous bailout of China's local government financing vehicles. A few years ago, China's local governments faced extraordinarily high stress. They had so much debt obligations, they had weak tax revenue, they had weak land sales revenue. Mm -hmm. And what Beijing did is they stepped in and they said, okay, banks, here's what you're going to do. You're going to refinance all of the loans you've made to local governments, and you're going to turn expensive short-term loans, so loans with a maturity of one or two years and an interest rate of six, seven, eight percent, into long maturity, low interest rate loans. So you're going to refinance these loans, and you're going to make the you're going to turn a one-year loan with a six percent interest rate into a ten-year loan with a three percent interest rate. That's a massive transfer from uh, from the banks to the local governments, um, significantly reduces the strain on local governments, and also really showcases the kind of the extreme policy instruments which Beijing can start moving around as it grapples with these enormous problems. That just shifts the burden onto the banks, though. And obviously, your book talks an awful lot about the increasing risks that are taken on by the Chinese banking system. Um, you know, which I think at one point you joke that it, it operates on a five eight nine rule. You borrow at 5%, lend at 8%, and pray the bank is still solvent by 9 Uh But the Chinese bank presidents are probably sleeping a bit easier knowing that they, they actually have the implicit support of the PBOC to, to do these sorts of things, including taking on, you know, refinancing all these loans from, from local government financing vehicles. Uh, the entire banking system, I think, is is pretty shot through with moral hazard and, and this this belief that they're too big to fail. Right? I mean, what what does that mean for for the future of Chinese banking? I mean, are are they able to absorb this? They've been now, as you say, just in recent years, tasked with with refinancing all of these local government loans. That's got to hurt their their balance sheets, no? 
It does. Um, and uh, maybe I'll, I'll share a story from one of the, the conversations I had with, with one of the one of the bankers I spoke with in, in the course of writing this book. So this was a guy who was in charge of corporate lending at one of China's more progressive banks. I, I, won't, I won't share the name, but it's one of those banks that kind of recognized in the market as having a more more sort of commercial orientation, less kind of tied into to helping the government hit their policy objectives. Right. Uh, and so we sat down with this guy and, and said, look, how do you make your lending decisions? How do you decide who gets a loan and who doesn't? And uh, he looked us in the eye and said, well, uh, it's very simple. We look out for what the policy priorities are from Beijing. And then we work out how our province is working to meet those policy objectives. And then we identify the specific projects which have been designed by the local government here to meet those national objectives. And that's where we make our loans. Huh. So if, if we were speaking to a banker in the United States or the UK and we said, how do you make your lending decisions? They would kind of look at us like we're crazy and say, well, look, we, we look at expected profits. We look at the risks. We look at how much collateral there is. Uh, and then we make a decision as, as to whether it's worth our while or not. It's a kind of a financial bottom line decision. But here was this banker in, in China, uh, at one of the more commercially oriented banks, basically telling us that the entire lending process was underpinned by moral hazard, by the best guess on which loans would receive the backing of Beijing and the provincial government if they turned bad. So I don't want to say moral hazard is, is completely endemic to China's financial system. The government's taken a number of steps in the last few years to start addressing the problem. We've seen some defaults by state-owned enterprises. Uh, we've seen some defaults by local governments. And that started to deal with the problem of moral hazard. But certainly, historically, and, and right now, uh, it's a problem which is extremely widespread. Uh, and what that means is just that there's a lot of inefficiency in lending, a lot of hidden stress in the system. Understood. It's also, you know, a, a fairly rational way to make your decisions, uh, your lending decisions in in that economy. I mean, it, it just sort of speaks to the massive difference between these political economies. Uh, in, in any case, in in your book, you drew really interesting parallels between uh, U.S. savings and loans that the ones that failed really spectacularly in the '80s and the '90s, and the Chinese joint stock banks like China Merchants Bank and, and Minsheng. Uh, you also note those so, some important differences. Uh, why do you think that we're not likely to see something like the savings and loan fiasco uh, with China's joint stock banks? What, what's different about them that, that would maybe preserve them from that fate? Mm. One of the concerns I have about a lot of the China analysis, which I see, is that it's, it's ahistorical. Uh, it doesn't pay enough attention to what happened in China in the past, even in the relatively recent past. And it doesn't take in the international perspective. It doesn't recognize the similarities and the differences between what's happening in China and what's happened in the United States, what's happened in Japan, what's happened in Korea uh, and other countries. And that, that's a shame because those comparisons can really be quite illuminating in, in helping us understand what's happening in, in China right now. Um, and one of the one of the striking comparisons, I think, the one the one you mentioned, is between China's joint stock banks and China's city banks uh, and the savings and loans which got into so much trouble um, in the United States in the nineteen eighties. Um, and there are some really striking similarities. Right. Um, in both cases, the banks and the savings and loans they dashed for growth 
by dodging regulations and paying a lot for their funding and chasing very high returns by making very risky investments and extending credit to some very risky borrowers. And in the savings and loan case, the result was a crisis. The savings and loans collapsed. Uh, It was a national scandal, contributed, many people think, to uh, George Bush Sr.'s loss in the election to, to Bill Clinton. The total cost many people put it around 3% of GDP. Right, right. Big problem. Now, in China, the same thing could happen. The joint stock banks, the city banks, they're the riskiest bit of China's financial system. But there's also, I think, a really important difference, and that is that China's regulators have moved early and aggressively to get on top of the problem. If you read the history of the savings and loan crisis, it's kind of, in some senses, the history of regulatory failure. Yeah. Right? right. There's this sort of hapless regulator who's trying to attempt to faintly ring the alarm, uh, but he's just getting sort of run over by the Treasury and more powerful interests in the in the U.S. body politic. Uh, Alan Greenspan actually wrote a letter in favor of one of the most notorious savings and loans saying, look, these guys are professionals, they're big boys, you need to leave them alone, you need to get out of their way. In China, um, it just looks very different. Yes, the problems got really big, but when policymakers decided to act, they acted decisively. And we now see the problems on the balance sheets of the joint stock banks and the city banks actually being managed down pretty effectively. You um, actually, I think the whole book really is about what you've just talked about, this this case for learning on the part of China's leadership. They're not just demonstrably studying the lessons of, of their own past, the, the mistakes that, that they've made. Uh, they're also looking at, at the mistakes of other major economies. I'm thinking of Japan in, in the early 80s with the Plaza Accord, uh, the Asian financial crisis. Uh, can you share what some of the really important lessons that Chinese leaders have learned uh, when looking at their own and uh, the pasts of, of, of other countries in the neighborhood and, and beyond? And also, if you, if you think there are any, maybe the lessons that Chinese leaders have yet failed to absorb. Yeah, it's a great question, and uh, it reminds me of that that great book on China, Atrophy and Adaptation, by uh, by David Shambau, mm-hmm. um, where I think he makes the kind of the draws the broad conclusion that um, it's the capacity of the Chinese Communist Party to absorb the lessons and adapt, which has been the sort of the critical differentiating factor for China compared to Soviet Russia, for example. And I think Shambau, after publishing that book, actually sort of changed his view and decided that things had, had moved more towards atrophy. Right. Um, and the, the Communist Party was sort of has had ceased to be able to learn and to adapt. Uh, I, I won't argue on the sort of the, the broad political side of that. But, but focusing on the economic and financial side, I actually think that there's a continued story uh, of learning and adaptation. And that's actually one of the reasons why I'm, I'm sort of still relatively constructive and optimistic on the, on the outlook for China. Thinking about the big lessons, uh, I think the absolutely critical one uh, was the Asian financial crisis. Mm. Um, so in the 1990s, we had Korea, uh, we had other countries across Asia uh, who were basically sort of drinking the Washington consensus Kool-Aid, right? Um, we need 
open capital systems. We need competitive markets. We need uh, Wall Street to come in and help us run our financial system and our economy. And that's how we're going to drive growth. Right. And of course, in the Asian financial crisis, what we saw was, well, it's all very nice when the money's coming in, but what happens when the money comes out? The system comes crashing down. Um, and China paid very close attention to that process. Uh, and they saw how a former dissident democracy activist became the president of Korea. And they saw how the decades-long reign of Suharto in Indonesia um, ended in ignominy. Um, and they saw, you know what? There are some really serious risks to opening up your your economy and your financial system too quickly and allowing those Wall Street banks uh, to come in too aggressively. Um, and so for the last 20 years, really, we've seen a much more sort of cautious and measured approach by the uh, by China's financial policymakers. They've, been, they've opened the economy quickly to trade, especially exports. They've moved much more slowly on opening the capital account. And I think that's one of the reasons why they've got this long record of stability. Hmm. Uh, I did ask about what lessons you maybe have they failed to to learn, but maybe we can save that for for toward the end of of the program today. So that's it. That's it. No, it's a good one, and um, and I, I should have come to it. But I, I think I think one of the issues, Kaiser, is post Great Financial Crisis. Who do you learn lessons from? Right. Right. Um, I think up until two thousand and eight, there was still a, a kind of a global view that. The West had it right, right? And the US had it right. And free markets and light touch regulation um, were the standard which everyone was going to converge on. And China was converging on that, you know, much more slowly and in a more cautious way than, than many, uh, many would have liked them to. But that was broadly speaking the direction they were moving in. Great financial crisis happens. US model doesn't look so appealing anymore, Indeed, right? Yeah. Um, COVID 19, I think the US model looks even less attractive. Um, so certainly there's lessons which the Chinese Communist Party have, have failed to learn. Um, but I think there's also a, another question, which is, well, what's the model now? What should they, who should they be learning from? Who should they be converging towards? Right. So now they've got to cross the minefield that doesn't have flags or, or craters or, or scattered body parts. <laughs> maybe some scattered body parts. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe there are some. Um, let's let's talk about this. What, what's happening right now? We're well into this push for deleveraging that began in roughly 2017. Uh, you make the case that it's been pretty successful, both in reducing overall indebtedness and in shrinking the shadow banking sector. How, how did things stand at the time that you submitted your manuscript? Uh, where were where was China along the, the the path to deleveraging, and has that been derailed at all uh, now? Because of COVID nineteen, will there be a need for additional stimulus and therefore more, you know, indebtedness? Um, so, so this comes back to one of my broader points, which is which is about the kind of the the value and the success of China's policy activism and and willing to inter willingness to intervene and deal with problems. Let Let's think for a second about the United States in two thousand and six and two thousand and seven on the eve of the Great Financial Crisis. Were there any U.S. policymakers ringing the alarm bell? Were there regulators clamping down on sharp practices um, in mortgage securitization? No, 
Absolutely not. Right, um, right. Policymakers were saying there's nothing to worry about here. The markets are sophisticated. We need to leave them to manage the risks by themselves. And clearly that wasn't the right approach at all. Um, China undeniably allowed the risks in its financial sector to run for too long and get too big. Um, but when they decided to act, which was 2016, 2017, they acted very decisively. Uh, the People's Bank of China went and went and kicked down the door of every bank in the country and said, show us your balance sheet. And if they didn't like what they saw on the balance sheet, there were punishments. That bank would have difficulty expanding their business. And if they did like what they saw, there were incentives. The bank would be able to, to grow more quickly. And I remember traveling around China at that time and visiting a bunch of local city banks. And I can tell you that that PBOC initiative was incredibly effective. It had incredibly sharp teeth. Wow. Um, and, uh, and we see that in the data as well. Up until 2016, 2017, explosive growth in bank assets, especially shadow bank assets, explosive growth in bank funding by wealth management through wealth management products, those kind of expensive, short-term, volatile funding sources. Right. Once, once the deleveraging campaign kicked off, those trends level off, and by the time I submitted the manuscript, we saw risks on China's balance, bank balance sheet starting to come down quite sharply. Hmm. And since then? So, uh, and that comes back to, to your question about what, what happens with COVID-19. Um, so, um, so what Liu He says, so Liu He, of course, is, um, is the, sort of the chief economic advisor to, to President Xi. Right. So what Liu He says, uh, and Liu He made a sort of a study of financial regulation and financial crises in, in the US and elsewhere, is that um, the mistake which other countries make is they have financial regulation which is, uh, which is pro-cyclical. So when things are going well, financial regulators say, great, things are going great, let's pull back on the regulations, let's, let's let things go even better. And what that means is that things run quickly out of control and then you have a crisis. And then when the crisis happens, the financial regulators wade in and they say, oh my goodness, risk is so high, we need to really clamp down. And that makes the crisis even worse. Hmm. Um, so what Leo Her says is, you know what? We need financial regulation, which is counter-cyclical. In the good times, we need to be tough. We need to say, yeah, things look good now, but this is the moment where you need to build up your capital buffer. This is the moment you need to fix the roof because sometime the storm is going to come, right? And then in the bad times, you've got a bit more space to stimulate. Um, and that's not, I wouldn't say that's a unique idea to Liu He. The idea of counter-cyclical uh, financial regulation is also, you know, an idea which people have in Japan, in Europe, in the United States. Right, in the United States very recently to Trump's great chagrin, right? Um, but it's just, it's harder to execute, right? Um it's harder to execute in other in other countries because, frankly, financial regulators are often captured by financial firms, and it's harder for them to uh, to to make life difficult for financial firms in the good times. Uh, but in China, in China, they do it. In China, the financial regulators are not, I think, captured by the by the banks. Um, and so, for for a number of years, two thousand and sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, um, policymakers were clamping down. They were reducing 
risks in the financial system. And so now when we have this COVID-19 recession and, and growth is really, you know, catastrophically weak, that does mean that, that China's policymakers have a bit more space to act. And so we've seen we've seen loan growth accelerating, uh, and I, I think we'll see strong loan growth this year. Do you think that this ability to avoid capture is basically an outcome of the anti-corruption drive that we saw since 2013 when, when Xi Jinping came into office? That is a really interesting question. Certainly, the anti-corruption campaign put the fear of God into executives at state-owned enterprises and local government officials and regulators and made it easier for Xi Jinping to get his policy priorities executed. Mm. So from that perspective, I think probably the answer is yes. I think there's also something else going on, which is to do with basically the relationship between the market and the state. Right. So in the US and the UK, uh, we have private firms and we have government regulators. And the trajectory in the last 30 years since the kind of the Reagan and Thatcher revolutions uh, has really been to tilt the power balance towards the private firms and away from the regulators. That's right. Right. Mm -hmm. So regulators have less power. They have less resources. They have less political cover. And the big firms, the big corporations, the big banks have a lot more freedom. And that has advantages. It also has some costs. It means that when the regulators do need to step in and say, no, this is a monopoly that needs to be broken up or no, this is too risky. We need to stop this particular type of practice or ban this particular type of instrument can be hard to do. In China, everyone's part of the same same state family. Right. That can create some serious problems as well. Uh, but I think what we've seen in the last few years is that when the regulators in China do have political backing, they can move quickly and aggressively uh, to contain some of the problems. Um, let's let's talk about shadow banking in particular here. Uh, one thing that I learned was that the shadow banking sector is something quite different from what I had originally thought it to be. I was, I guess, thinking like I suppose many people were about big P2P platforms or pawnbrokers or just local loan sharks, but it's actually the banks themselves, as you as you say in your book. Um, can you explain how shadow loans originate actually with the big banks and why they make them? Yeah, it, it was a huge disappointment to me um, when I when I when I started looking at shadow banks. I thought, you know, I'm going to go and hang out with some Wenjo loan sharks. Um, <laughs> maybe we'll go and chop some people's fingers off together. Oh, man. <laughs> um, and uh, none of that happened. None of it happened, Kaiser. Um, the um, wait, wait. So there, there was one guy who was had to had to, to content himself with just uh, having someone beaten up, and it did make him feel better. <laughs> That's true, yeah. yeah so that, that's um, in your book. That 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 made me laugh. <laughs> the, so to come back to the question, so the way most people think about shadow banking is it's the loan shark, it's the curbside finance, the kind of thing which is captured so well in um, Kelly Tsai's uh, early book, um, Back Alley Bankers, right? Um, and that is that is a real phenomenon, and there's a lot of it, uh, especially in, in Wenzhou in in Zhejiang Province, um, but it's not most of the activity, most of the shadow banking activity actually comes from the mainstream banks. Um, and, and the way it works is something like this. Um, so uh, the bank has a relationship with a borrower. And for one reason or another, they don't want that relationship to be so visible. 
maybe the borrower is about to default and so they don't want to report a, a non-performing loan. Um, maybe the borrower is a, is a high pollution company um, and they're being targeted by some government campaign which is trying to cut off the sources of credit to the big polluters. Um, so the bank needs to end the front door relationship. But they don't want to cut the borrower off completely because if they cut the borrower off completely, they um, might ha- they might face a default, which will show up on their loan books. They might push the firm into bankruptcy and create unemployment, which would mean they get into trouble with the local government. So what do they do? Um, they find a workaround. And in general, the way that works is the bank finds an intermediary to sit in between them and the borrower. Uh-huh. Um, so in the kind of the conventional lending world, the bank makes a loan to the corporate. In the shadow banking world, the bank goes to a trust or an asset manager and says, okay, we want you to make a loan to this corporate. And then we want you to create a security which will give the owner a claim on the repayment of the loan and interest on the loan, and we will buy that security from you. Hmm. Um, So the kind of the essential relationship hasn't changed. The bank is still lending money to the corporate but because the trust or the asset manager is now sitting in the middle of the transaction it appears on the bank's balance sheet in a different way it doesn't appear as a loan it appears as an investment in a security and the bulk of shadow banking activity in china actually that's what it looks like that makes it very clear but that also raises the question of what happens to these you know securitized shadow loans uh you know, that that sounds familiar to me. It sounds a little bit like the securitized mortgage lending that was created in the U.S. Uh, walk us through. There are, there are obvious parallels. There. Are there differences, though? I mean, why is this maybe less of a problem or is it less of a problem than the, the securitized mortgage situation that we faced in the mid-2000s? Right. So, so, so there's nothing intrinsically wrong with securitization. Um, securitization, which is the um, the reselling of the right to repayment of principal and interest on a loan, um, should help shift risk and move risk around the financial system uh, in a more efficient way. Um, it's a positive. Uh, but, but as we saw in the great financial crisis, things can also go really badly wrong. And one of the sort of the intrinsic problems is that by lengthening the chain of transactions, you break the link between the original lender and the original borrower. And what that means is that the original lender doesn't have skin in the game, so they don't have an incentive to make sure it's a good loan to a high-quality borrower. And the person who ends up owning the loan doesn't have visibility on the quality of the underlying borrower. And when you have that problem, when you have those problems, then things can go really badly wrong. And and that was one of the reasons we saw the great financial crisis um, in the US in 2007, 2008. So something similar is, has been happening in China. Trusts made loans to bad, low quality corporates. Those loans were securitized and the claim on them was sold to banks. Uh, And in some cases, the banks would then sell that claim on to retail investors in the form of wealth management products. Um, And the bank and the trust might know that this is a loan to a, you know, a ghost town project or a a rusting steel mill uh, that just isn't competitive anymore. But by the time it's repackaged in the the retail level, nobody knows that. They they just think it's just another of these financial products. That's exactly right. Um, and that's why it's so disappointing that in addition to participating in the cult that you mentioned at the beginning, uh, Jeremy Goldcorn has spent so much time 
marketing wealth management products to uh, to unsuspecting retail investors on the Chinese street. I keep telling him about that, but you know, it's really deeply unethical. And I think actually, you know, we have something in in our charter that should prevent him from doing that. I'm going to bring it up at our next board meeting. I think I, I think that's that's important, yeah. Kaiser, and it's good that you're you're setting a high moral tone for the for the Sinica podcast. <laughs> Someone has to do it. Um, so, um, but the the difference again uh, to draw the distinction between the U.S. in 2007 and, and China in 2016 17 is Chinese China's policymakers got ahead of the problem. Right, China's policymakers said, you know what. This explosive growth in securitization, this shifting of risk onto the off the balance sheet of banks and onto the balance sheet of retail investors, um, this is going too quickly. Um, so if you look at a chart of um, assets under management in wealth management products in China, up till 2016, it was rocketing higher. And then from 2017, um, when the deleveraging agenda started, it leveled off and then it started to come down. Right. Um, so the, the problem was the same. The securitization issue was the same. The lack of transparency was the same. The difference was the policy response. Has there been any collateral damage from this crackdown on shadow banking, like SMEs that haven't been able to get access to capital? Or are there ways that Beijing is implementing you know, in, to try to address that sh- capital shortfall for these companies? Um, so that's that's a great question. Um, and um, so what what China's policymakers have done, or what China's policymakers often try and do, um, is 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 what they call in China uh, closing the back door and opening the front door. Right. So we are going to close down the kind of the surreptitious, shady backdoor operations, which are keeping small businesses afloat. Um, But we're also going to open the front door so that they can walk into the front door of the bank and have a normal business relationship with them. And that will be more transparent, it will be cheaper, and it will be more sustainable. Um, So there's definitely been been efforts and energy in that direction. Um, People's Bank of China in particular uh, has really been moving a lot of policy instruments to try and encourage banks to make more loans to small businesses. Has that completely provided? Has that provided the complete offset? Is there a kind of one-for-one trade-off? <laughs> Probably not. Almost certainly yeah, not, yeah. I would say. Uh, but certainly, there's been aggressive efforts in that direction. So, so Tom, you've talked about uh, a source of stability in China's banking sector uh, coming from the high savings rate that we see among Chinese domestic savers. Uh, rates as high as fifty-one percent in two thousand seven, um, despite the really low uh, interest that, that that savings deposits generate. But it's been, you know, there's a downside to it as well. What is the net effect in China of the falling savings rate? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. Um, I mean, in, in a sense, the, the high savings rate, um, which itself finds its origin in, in China's single, in China's one-child policy, um, uh, is, the, is the kind of the original sin in China's unbalanced growth model. Right. Um, when you have really high saving, um, then you need to recycle that saving back into the economy. Um, And you can do that in one of two ways. You can make loans overseas, which come back as higher export demand. Um, And that's what China did, basically, from WTO entry through to the great financial crisis in 2007, 2008. Um, Or you can make loans to yourself, um, which then create investment and boost demand and, and employment and so on. Through and that's what big China, infrastructure and, projects and things like that, right? 
Indeed, yeah. Build infrastructure, build real estate, build industrial capacity. Um, and, and the story of China over the last 20 years, sort of very crudely understood, is the transition from one to the other, right? So from 2001 to 2008, we had really high saving, and that was lent overseas and turned into export demand, and China grew by exporting a huge amount to consumers in the US and Europe and elsewhere. And then after the great financial crisis, that model didn't work anymore. Um, and so China recycled the saving into domestic loans, which paid for an investment boom, infrastructure, real estate, industrial capacity. And that kept growth going. Um, so that's the kind of the model. Um, trouble is both exporting overseas and investing at home uh, is unsustainable. If you export too much overseas, you contribute to global imbalances, and that was one of the factors which contributed to the great financial crisis. If you lend and invest too much at home, you have a debt bubble, you have excess investment, you have ghost towns of empty property, you have roads to nowhere, you have industrial overcapacity. Um, that's the problem. Um, the saving grace uh, is that when you have a very high domestic savings rate, you also have a very, very strong funding base for the banks. Right. Um, and if we think about the history of financial crises from the Korea collapse in 1997 and the Asian financial crisis to the Lehman collapse in, in 2008, crises don't happen because banks have got too many bad loans. They happen because banks run out of funding. Yeah, they're underfunded. Um, yeah. And in China, so much domestic saving controlled capital account, which we talked about earlier, so that the, the saving can't go anywhere else. It has to go into the domestic banks. So there's basically never going to be a problem with the funding of the banks. And that means that China has a bunch of time to run these deleveraging campaigns and try and manage down the problems. Uh, and there isn't really a kind of a catalyst or a trigger for crisis. You defend that post-2008 investment boom, um, maybe by you know, sort of downplaying, I think, a lot of the, the problems that a lot of critics have, have pointed out. Uh, one thing that I remember you saying, it was at the end of chapter two, you put your finger on something that I think really does go ignored. Um, I'm going to read you what you, you wrote, a bean counting approach to the value generated by investments. This is the larger social benefits. And you note that these are public goods, that they, they have secondary returns from, you know, from the homes and businesses that actually use the new infrastructure. Uh, can you expand on this a bit? So, um, from a kind of from a from an account, from an accounting perspective, um, if a bank makes an, a loan in a business and that business doesn't generate sufficient returns to repay the loan, um, then that's a bad loan, and the bank has made a bad decision, and the business has made a bad decision, and everyone loses. Right? Um, in China, things look a little bit different for a couple of reasons. Firstly. China's still at a relatively early stage of development, which means there's lots of what you might call kind of easy win infrastructure projects, right? Um, how long does it get for, how long does it take to get from Pudong Airport uh, to Puxi Airport? Like all day? <laughs> there's an obvious and easy win in improving the uh, transport links between those two airports. Can you drink the water in Beijing or in any Chinese city? No. Right. So there's a kind of an obvious and easy win by investing in, in superior water processing plants. Um, and the second reason is that 
In China, the government very often owns the bank making the loan and they own the business um, which is borrowing the money. Um, and so what that means is the government can identify public goods. They can direct the state-owned banks to make the loan. They can direct the state-owned business to make the investment. And that particular project might not generate enough revenue for the loan to be paid back. But if it's a well-chosen project, it's going to support the local economy. There's going to be more businesses which pay taxes. There's going to be more households that pay taxes. That money is going to go to the local government. And there's going to be enough money in the system to make everyone whole, even though that particular project didn't work out on a kind of narrowly defined accounting basis. Right, right, right. Tom, I, I'm struck living in the United States here, especially by the kind of economic illiteracy of some of the people at the very top. I mean, we, we've had presidents in the U.S. who are plenty smart, I'm thinking about, you know, 44, for instance, but it's not been consistent, to say the least. How, how do you rate the economic literacy of the top leaders in China versus the U.S.? I feel like they, they, you know, somebody who's like the general secretary of the CCP or the premier, they seem to have pretty impressive command of, of, of the details and the numbers, even when, when asked about it on the fly. Is is that is is that an illusion or is is there some reality in that? I think so. So lead. I think leaders leaders in leaders in China have made some really serious economic policy mistakes. Yeah. Um, allowing the four trillion yuan stimulus, which saved the Chinese economy from the the first kind of uh, vicissitudes of the great financial crisis, to run so strong for so long. Um, was clearly an economic policy mistake, right? That's why China has now got this legacy of, of enormous debt. Um, so I don't think they're all seeing, I don't think they're, they're all knowing. Um, what I do think is that they listen to advice, they empower technocrats to get things done, um, and they have a higher confidence in the capacity of government action to move things in the right direction. Right. Um, if we think about the United States or the UK, even when we have uh, the Democrats in power, I would say we've got a relatively low degree of confidence in the capacity of government to do things, to make things better. Right. 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 We don't want government to build infrastructure. We don't want government to identify potential innovative companies to get funding. We don't want government to intervene to address problems of, of poverty. Um, we might want the government to identify priorities, but more or less, we want the private sector to come in and solve those problems. Um, in China, I think there's, there's a willingness to listen to the technocrats uh, from Zhou Xiaochuan, who was in many respects the architect of, of China's 20th, 21st century financial reforms, uh, to Liu He, who's driven the deleveraging agenda, um, a willingness to empower technocrats, right? Um, the PBOC kicking down the door of the banks and saying, show us your balance sheets. Right. Um, and, a, and a confidence that, that government action can actually move the dial in the right direction. And I think all of these things uh, are just really important differences between the, the U.S. picture and the Chinese picture. Indeed. You, you also point out that Beijing has tools available to it for tweaking the economy that, that other countries just don't. What are some of the specific tools that China's central bankers actually have to deal with bubbles when they see them forming, as with the real estate bubble, you know, that they began to deflate in, in, in 2010. Uh, 
other other asset classes that they see bubbles forming, and they they seem to be able to deal with these, and they have tools available to them. What what are some of them? So um, maybe I'll, I'll tell you a story about a trip I took to to Guiyang, um, which is the the capital of Guizhou Province. So we were traveling through the center of uh, of Guiyang, um, and entire swathes of the kind of the urban landscape have been torn down. And you could see these kind of these old low rise houses um, literally being sort of torn down in front of your eyes. Um, and on the edge of the sort of the the urban landscape were these kind of these gleaming new tower blocks. Um, and uh, the government there was doing something kind of rather remarkable. Um, they were engaged in a, a forced relocation or a forced rehabilitation of hundreds of thousands of residents of the city they were tearing down their houses and they were giving them a payment which enabled them to buy a new apartment right um and that is something which i just can't imagine happening uh, in any other country in the world but it was happening in china not just in guiyang but on a national scale and not just in uh, 2017, which is when we were there, but for a number of years. Yeah, no, it's been happening for yeah a decade before that. And the consequence was, I don't know the, the number, but certainly millions, maybe tens of millions of people who got kicked out of their old low-rise apart, low-rise house and moved into into a shiny new apartment. And I'm sure a lot of them didn't like it. And, you know, maybe some of them did because they, they had plumbing and electricity and a new place to live. But that scale of, of policy action which China's government does and no one else does, enables the government to deal with what seem like really insoluble, insoluble macro issues um, in a way that, that no one else can. In that case, of course, they were dealing with the problem of, of real estate overcapacity. There's another tool that you talk about, though, that uh, maybe isn't as, as, as benign, uh, media control the role of, of, of media control in management of the economy, which isn't something that everyone thinks about a lot. Uh, in episodes where there's a potential for panic, for example, or when a policy like that about relocation uh, threatens to to stir up too much sort of civil unrest, uh, they're able to clamp down using censorship, uh, using propaganda, their, their tight controls of the media. Can you talk about that? I want to be clear that a free press is um, is a positive. And if you don't have a free press, you expose yourself to all kinds of problems. Uh, At the same time, in a crisis, capacity to control the narrative can be a powerful tool uh, to prevent problems from spiraling out of control. Um, And that's something that China has in spades. Um, So in the equity market meltdown in 2015, it was very clear to journalists in China that there were some things that they could write about and there were some things that they could not write about. Mm -hmm. And because the government was able to control the narrative, ultimately they were able to put a floor under the falling market um, and restore stability uh, to the financial system. Something Trump no doubt really envies right now. Uh, You credit the imagination of China's policymakers, something that I think the bears routinely underestimate as an important reason why the predictions of doom haven't yet come to pass. Give us some examples of this imagination at work. I know you've given me some examples of, of you know, fairly wise policy, but imagination seems to go beyond just that. Um, okay, so I think, the, I think for me, this is going back, this is going back a while, but uh, for me, the three represents is a kind of audacious and imaginative policy move, uh, which kind of, in a sense, 
undermines sort of centuries of Western thought on the relationship between um, wealth and democracy, right? Yeah, just for people who don't know what that means, uh, the three represents were Jiang Zemin's sort of signature initiative, uh, this idea that uh, basically, you know, he wa- he wanted to open the party up to what he described as the leading forces of of uh, culture and the leading forces of production. In other words, capitalists, intellectuals, artists. Exactly. Yeah, I think it it, it saved the party. I think for better or for worse. So for I mean, if you go, I'm, I'm, I know you're familiar with the history, Kaiser. But if you go and read the go and read the sort of the narrative in the 1990s from the kind of the Clinton. Clinton camp and the whole sort of justification for for China to enter the the, the World Trade Organization, uh, it go, it goes something like this, right? Um, markets and capitalism and democracy all go together, uh, and if we create a constituency of people in China who own their businesses and are engaged with the global trade system, they will be kind of carriers of the uh sort of uh the democratic um virus they'll, they'll be kind of yeah <laughs> i was kind of i was kind of struggling to avoid virus <laughs> but i i couldn't come up with a better word um uh, and what did the what did what did jang zemin do he said you know what these people can all come into the communist party they're part of the gang too um so audacious imaginative um and kind of circumvent centuries of, of Western thinking on, on modernization theory. Speaking of leaders, uh, you do a lot to con- contrast what, what's happened, what happened during Hu's time uh, and Xi Jinping. You know, Hu, he's the son of a teacher. He ruled by consensus, and um, we're not sure whether that was a feature or a bug. Uh, some have argued that it made him really weak and ineffective. Uh, others that, I mean, and I think we all lived there during that time. There was a, a kind of looseness that was something a lot of us did appreciate. Uh, Xi Jinping, by contrast, you know, he's the son of a very well-established party veteran. He definitely flexes that unilateral muscle. Uh, what impact did these two contrasting leadership styles ultimately have on the success economically of each individual during their time so far in office? So I, I, I actually think that, that Hu Jintao's achievements are actually understated. Um, it's certainly true that he inherited a very, very favorable situation. Uh, Zhu Rongji and Jiang Zemin had taken China into the World Trade Organization. They'd recapitalized the banks. They had um, done root and branch reform of the state-owned enterprises. So Hu Jintao really had a kind of a springboard for growth. Um, and that was a big advantage for him setting out. He had some significant achievements of his own. Um, there was the beginning of the kind of the creation of China's welfare state, paying more attention to the needs of people who'd been left behind in the boom. They didn't go all the way there. They didn't go all the way on land. They didn't go all the way on hukou reform. But they, did, but they made some important progress. Yeah, the agricultural um, tax, the abolition of that was really important. Absolutely. And on the economic and the financial side, um, well, we had yuan liberalization. We had the beginnings of interest rate liberalization. Uh, and China rode out the great financial crisis more successfully than any other economy in the world. So so I think there was some significant achievements. Uh at the same time, I think if you contrast with the things which Zhu Rongji got done in the 1990s, or even more Deng Xiaoping in the 1980s, um, 
it's kind of a meager list of achievements, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think in particular, people point to the the rising role of the state-owned enterprises, um, the focus on indigenous innovation um, as kind of steps in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Tom, one thing that keeps coming up with me of late while doing this show is just the very emotional nature of the way that you know we Western observers of China respond. Uh, it really limits our ability to, to be dispassionate when we try to assess Beijing and its policy. Uh, this seems even to be true when it comes to economics, and it's something that you actually bring up yourself into in sort of why the bears get it wrong. C- can you talk about how that manifests itself? I, th- I think there's a tendency to view China through the lens of a kind of a morality play, right? Um, so, China did all. China saved a lot in the run up to the Great Financial Crisis, and the U.S. borrowed that money and spent it. Um, and so China was bad for doing all the saving. Right. This is like my my wife is to blame for my liver cirrhosis because she squirrels away all this money that I have to spend on booze. Right. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of I'm more sympathetic to that position. Kind of, but, um, <laughs> So there's just a lot of emotive issues at work, right? Uh, China is a state-dominated economy. The U.S. is a market economy. China has a single-party state. The U.S. is democratic. Um, many analysts and economists uh, who write about China are, are beneficiaries one way or another of the Pax Americana. Uh, China's rise as a, as a military power, uh, in a sense, threatens to to destabilize that. Um, and so, when you're viewing China through through the prism of all of these kind of these binary binary differences, I think it's really hard to come up with a dispassionate view. Um, and I think the result of that is there's a tendency just to view everything which China does as bad. Right. right. Um, let me give you let me give you one example of that, and come back to the Hu Jintao Xi Jinping contrast that you introduced earlier. Um, so when when I arrived in China, Hu Jintao was in charge, um, and Hu Jintao was seen as a weak leader. Um, Western commentators viewed Hu Jintao as a weak leader because he operated through consensus, and uh, he was kind of procedurally thorough, but. Everything got watered down in discussion and difficult decisions weren't taken and opportunities were missed. And so the kind of the consensus view as Hu Jintao left office was, you know what, we need a stronger leader. We need someone who can grasp the nettle, someone who's a bit more muscular, someone who can get things done. (laughs) <laughs> so Xi Jinping comes in, uh, and of course Xi Jinping is all of these things, right? Xi Jinping gets things done. Xi Jinping bangs heads together. Xi Jinping is a kind of a muscular leader. Um, so was the reaction to kind of welcome Xi Jinping? This is the kind of the strong man that we that we were asking for. No, uh, the narrative immediately switches. Um, everyone says um, that this is kind of uh, neo. This is kind of return of kind of Mao style leadership that she is creating bottlenecks in decision making by having everything go through his desk um and so i i kind of feel like that's kind of emblematic (laughs) of a kind of damned if they do damned if they don't uh approach to thinking about a lot of things in china's um financial system and economy indeed uh I think let's at the end here. Let's let's come back to COVID nineteen. Um, it's often said that a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. 
is Beijing going to be able to put this crisis to good use in ways that you can identify? Maybe you're going to offer up some prognostications about the impact of the crisis on the economy. I mean, it's a it's a human tragedy. Um, it's a tragedy in China. It's a tragedy in the U.S. It's a, it's a tragedy around the world. Um, and I think that's going to be the kind of that's going to be the kind of the abiding image in in my mind. Are some good things going to come out of this for China? So I'm not sure if this is good or bad, but I think it's going to reinforce China's view in the relative advantages of their social model. China managed to contain the virus relatively quickly with a relatively low loss of life. Of course, any loss of life is is a tragedy, but with a relatively low loss of life, a lot of other countries have floundered and they've been slow to react and they haven't introduced uh, the needed controls. And that means their case count continues to rise and their fatalities uh, are higher than uh, anyone would want them to be. Um, there's going to be some stimulus coming out of China. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be the $4 trillion stimulus that we saw in, in 2008, but there is going to be some stimulus. Um, it's going to be focused on what you might call next generation infrastructure, mm-hmm. Wizier telecommunication infrastructure, for example. That's going to be something which I think is a, is a long-term advantage for the, for the Chinese economy. And of course, as, as the U.S. steps back from the World Health Organization, we see China attempting to, to move into a larger role um, in global governance. Uh, we'll see how durable that is. But, but if that sticks, that will be a longer term positive for, for, for China's Communist Party as well. There's so many other things in the book that I'd love to be able to get to, uh, but in the interest of time, um, maybe we'll have you back on to talk talk about more of this, things like you know, the modern features of the Chinese economy, mobile payments, uh, you know, the e-commerce sector, uh, about the, the new wealth management products that popped up in over overnight uh, a few years back and, and, and grew to such enormous size. I had, you know, uh, probably 15 more questions that I wanted to get to today. Uh, but we'll another time, Tom, that it would be great to have you back. And thank you so much for talking to me today. Uh, the book again is China, the bubble that never pops and it is out right now. I, I cannot recommend it more highly. It is just extremely readable and entertaining at the same time that it informs. I think it's really, really written for somebody just like the people who are listening to this show, people who have a very keen interest in China and quite a bit of knowledge about China, but don't know the ins and outs of the economy quite as well as they probably should. So uh, I hope you all pick up a copy of it. It's just fantastic. Cannot recommend it more highly. Uh, speaking of recommending things highly, let's, let's on, get on to recommendations. Before that, I do want to tell cynical listeners what they can do to help us out. Dear Seneca podcast listeners and fans, we were grateful to be able to celebrate the 10th anniversary of our podcast with you guys, and I hope many of you caught that and enjoyed it. We've come a long way since our early days in Beijing in that crude and cruddy studio. Uh, We are delighted that so many of you have come along with us on this ride. Today's SubChina is home not only to Seneca, but to eight other podcasts under the Seneca network. And we've racked up about a quarter of a million downloads each month. That makes us pretty proud. But we would like to do even more, and we need your help. In celebration of our 10th anniversary, we're launching a fundraising campaign to support our ongoing podcast efforts. We appreciate your showing your support, especially during these difficult days of the COVID-19 pandemic. So please don't be shy. If you have valued the podcast, 
and would like to see us continue to bring you wide-ranging interviews with the top people in the China field, please show your support. All the funds raised will go to support our team. We get to do the fun part, which is interviewing the guests, doing the research, and writing our questions, but we have many other hosts working hard on the other network shows. We have Jason, who tackles the editing and sound engineering on many of the network shows, making them sparkle. And we have Jeremy's editorial team, which does all the back-end support and works to get the shows up on the platforms like iTunes and Spotify and on all the right podcast apps. So help us out. This is the first time in a decade we have asked for any direct financial support. Show us that you value what we're doing and that you've learned something from our work and that we've made a difference in your understanding of China. Go to podcast.subchina.com. That's podcast.subchina.com. And help us out. Thank you so much. Okay, on to recommendations. Tom, what, what do you have for our listeners? Um, so, um, so I, I get invited on this show so rarely, Kaiser, that I'm going to have to try and cram in two recommendations. Oh, you two at least, yeah. So, um, so the first one, uh, and this is kind of a, a nod to some of my to some of my intellectual debts, uh, and this is uh, China's unfinished economic revolution, uh, which is a book by Nick Lardy, um, mm. one of the great. U.S. experts on the Chinese economy, um, works at the Peterson Institute in, in D.C. Uh, and this was a book which was written in 1998. Um, and it was written at a moment where China had a lot of problems. The state sector was big and inefficient. Uh, the banks had a lot of bad loans. Uh, there was concern about the rise of the shadow banking sector. Um, and yet... As, as Nick has chronicled in his subsequent books, those problems were managed, the economy continued to grow, China's rise, China continued to rise. Um, and so this book, um, China's Unfinished Economic Revolution, um, I think is a kind of, it's a useful antidote to the kind of the ahistorical nature of a lot of the analysis we read on China right now. And a reminder that, you know what, a lot of the problems we see today, they're not that new. And China's policymakers encountered them in the past, and they managed them pretty well. Um, and then the second one, which is a, a bit more fun, um, the story of the stone, uh, oh, or, yeah. or the dream of the red chamber, uh, by Sao Xuechin, uh, translated by David Hawkes. Um, That's a great translation. Yeah, one of the one of the four classic Chinese novels, um, and it's just a lot of fun. Um, I, I'm told it gets a lot darker. I'm only on volume three, uh, but so far it's a bunch of teenagers uh, living in a beautiful compound, um, eating nice food, wearing nice clothes, and playing elaborate word games with each other uh, and getting up to some other naughty things as well. Um, and it's just a lot of fun reading something like that during this period of COVID-19 uh, where we all need a little bit of distraction from daily life. It sounds like my life during quarantine. It's been great. I mean, there's not a lot of naughty fun, but I do have these teenagers and lots of word games going on. Anyway, <laughs> my recommendation, coincidentally, is also related to one of China's four novels. Uh, if you know me well at all, you know that I'm a fanatic uh, for Sanguo uh, Yanyi, The Three Kingdoms. Uh, during this very genteel quarantine that I've been, you know, it's almost guilt-inducingly genteel, I've been actually, you know, making myself a Sazerac or an old-fashioned many evenings and just sitting down and watching the 2010 Chinese TV series that's called Three Kingdoms, which thankfully has as fan subs, um, English subtitles on YouTube. Somebody 
called Jianghu or an organization called Jianghu has done just a fantastic job with English subtitles. It's uh, 95 episodes long. I am now on episode, I think, 73 or 4. Um, and, you know, Guan Yu is dead. Cao Cao is dead. It's just not as much fun from here on in. You know, things are about to go to complete shit for Liu Bei and Zhuge Liang and all the other good guys. Uh, but it is definitely worth watching. Uh, there is really, really amazing acting. The guy who plays Cao Cao, especially the guy who plays Liu Bei, both, they're fantastically good actors. And that kind of makes up for the lame battles and the repetitive you know, duels and um, just the the the, the kind of low production value that you see in some of it. But um, my wife is actually probably going to kill me because I've started using all these faux Chinese archaisms in everyday speech. So may, maybe I better not watch the two thousand. No, there's a 1994 version which actually has it's better in some ways. I, I've seen I've seen that one before, and I. I at least if memory serves, it, it, it is actually kind of the better production. I'm going to, to sit through and watch it again if my wife can stand me you know, uh, talking like that. <laughs> It'll be fun. Tom, thanks thanks once more. That was just fantastically fun to, 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 uh, to connect with you on, on, on this stuff. And congrats on the book. Thanks for having me, Kaiser. All right. We will, we'll talk to you soon, man. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out the other podcasts in our network, including the China in Africa podcast, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, New Voices, Ta for Ta, Women, Success in China, the Middle Earth podcast, the China Marketing Podcast, and of course, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China. So thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.